0: Okay. okay, thanks everybody. Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. And today I have a friend who I've known three, four, five years, maybe mm-hmm. Michael Mendiza. And I don't, is that how you say your name? Mendiza, yep, you did fine. And I don't remember how we met i think you sent me something and i said something like that's not right <laughs> as usual right yeah as yeah. usual right. and, uh anyways uh went on from there yeah uh, so michael knows a lot about school and that's why i um wanted to have him share his expertise today and as many of you heard me say I'm not a big fan of school. And I'll just say uh, two brief uh, quotes that kind of summarize it for me. One, they're not really quotes. One is a quote or a paraphrase, and one's a story. So one of my heroes is, uh, of course, Ivan Illich. And his to me, his summary of school was, if you do well in school, you get the dubious privilege of being able to consume more school until you've consumed so much school that the only people you can talk to are people who've consumed a similar amount of school and i think that sums up virology in a nutshell right right and the other is was is my uh recent uh why i'm for mandates uh uh story which is we were we were i I was asked by a, a young guy if he could uh use my property to build a uh a timber frame hut uh on our property and he's like 22 and i and he wanted to do this to teach younger people than him like not like us uh how to do that and i just said, "Do you know how to do this?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm pretty good." Turns out he's amazing at doing it. And so he d- he didn't do well in school, dropped out, and now he can do just about everything. Uh, and he he started getting young people to come, and he was teaching them how to build, you know, from our land wood building a house. And he one of the people who came was a young man who was at NYU and he was uh, just finished his freshman year and they put in the vaccine mandates and he was smart enough not to wanna do that. So he dropped out. And as I said, that saved him $120,000 from three years tuition. And now three months later, he knows how to build a timber frame house more or less and he is thrilled with what he's learned by just being here and working you know in this community and that's my story about school and with that Michael if you could introduce yourself how did you start wondering about it's I'm talking about school but it's really how children learn or how does anybody learn you know what how do how does a human being learn stuff and You've been been around this world for, I don't know, 40 years or so with Joseph Chilton Pierce and Krishnamurti and uh, you're an incredible resource. So with that, take it away. Tell us what we need to know about learning school and anything else. And then how do we go about with our children uh, helping them learn to be real adults? I guess that's it. So again, yeah. thank you, Michael. And... Yeah, my pleasure. Well, it's
1: it's a it is a pleasure, and it is a topic that we both share passionately. It's a soapbox, you know. So we're 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 certainly colleagues with this. Um, you know, I was born in for 1949, seventy two years ago. I was you know raised in the in the school system. I went to school i was dyslectic as a kid i i didn't do well with the math and with the numbers and all that the letters kind of floated off the screen and i couldn't get a d from a b if my life depended on it um so i experienced directly the comparison and the humiliation um that the whole system is based on the groups you're the smart group you're the dumb group etc cetera, etc cetera. and i remember as a young child um you know literally walking home from school in tears daily wow you know, just because it was such a horrible thing. Um, so I have this kind of visceral feeling about um, what the system did to me. Um, I did overcome my dyslexia. I've written five books, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, I, I deal with with uh, this kind of information all the time. Um, so basically, the, my looking at schooling started with my first wife um when our now sev- or excuse me 47 year old son eric um was supposed to go to school and we said well should we send him to school or should we do it ourselves and it was that was a long time ago so um you know that make- that means it's close to 40 years ago he was probably five five when we were asking that question so 40 years ago we were pondering that john holt had written some of his books which were primer texts at the time in how children learn all the time, And basically he was questioning the whole school model of, of what's what school really all about, and does it serve kids? So we sent we kept Eric home for three or four years until he was nine or something like that. But then we kind of gave in to what I call the socialization myth. And that is, well, the kid needs to have other friends, and we just can't keep him isolated. and you know it's not good for him. He needs to be out there with all the other kids. And, you know, why is it a myth? Because the bottom line is, we feel that sending them to an institution for them to be conditioned by the institution, we call that socialization. And, and that's gonna be better for the kid than what we would do with our family and friends in the, the local community. So that's right. the myth. And, you know, when you start tallying up the bullying and the all the negative attributes that come in with that, with that institutional conditioning, then you realize that it nets out really poorly. And um, so you, you, you know, so it's a myth. So the socialization thing is a complete myth.
2: So you know, Michael,
0: yes, it's, it, it's also one of the things I have told people for years is if you're the only person in your state who's not sending your child to school, you have a potential problem. But if you're one of a thousand in your neighborhood, you're you don't have a problem for
1: sure no absolutely and I, well again 40 years ago it was pretty ahead of its time yeah etc so at that time it was a little edgy now of course millions of people are doing it and have done it there, it's well track record the stats are all out have been in for years even the universities realize that the homeschool kids are brighter and smarter and better learners than the conditioned yes. kids in the mainstream stuff so all the stats are there. It's in, you know it's it's irrevocable. I have to say, and I I don't have the graphic handy, but Tom, you've um, interviewed Allison McDowell. Yeah. And Allison uh, started as a mom, and she looked at the standardized testing, and that led her down the rabbit hole of how big tech has intervened into the school system, and embedded into the tests and into the tablets and into all of the all of the activities. Um, so schooling now is basically an extension of the surveillance state and the data gathering mechanisms that are in place, very sophisticated, a uh, real quick story, um, again, with Joe Pierce, um, he was invited to a symposium by Fritz Capra, and they were looking, this is in the mid nineties and the, the big tech was just pushing, um, technology in early childhood and of course it's been in the universities and in the high schools with computers and stuff but they were pushing it down to the grade levels and in, and even down into preschools and and so Capra did this symposium with about 20 experts from around the world media education technology etc and they spent 3 days together and I tagged along because Joe was invited and and uh, anyway so I got to go and sit in on this thing and and Basically, the net of their whole thing was the the less screen time, the, the better for the child up to age 11. Now, I'm going to say this and you may be familiar with the, the notion of neural pruning. Basically, at, at age around 11, the brain releases a, a, a substance that um, t- kind of purges all the unmyelinated uh, brain power that was packed in that brain as a baby. So there's actually a, a shedding down or a pruning or a distilling of neural capacities at age 11. The assumption is, is that the kid has experienced everything. It's just getting ready for puberty. So we're, 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 we're prepping the brain for adulthood at that time they've, they've engaged and interacted with all the things that they need to in the environment. They've tasted everything and swung in the pond and did all that they needed to do. Um, And so now they they have a firm brain foundation for this pruning to take place, which distills consciousness into another level, where abstract reasoning can be processed uh, more efficiently. So neural pruning, neural pruning is the was the age 11 marker. If you substitute virtual reality for organic reality during that time, during those first eleven years, then all the time that you're dealing with the screen, from a neural development standpoint, it's all the same screen. The content is irrelevant, right? From a brain standpoint, it's the screen. And it doesn't matter what's on the screen. It's a screen is a screen is a screen. So all that time that children are spending time screwing around with the screen is one experience. Right. And it's negating all the other experiences that one should have or could have. And that was the argument that Joe um, presented to that group. And the general consensus was, yes, the less screen time, the better. So, know, that-
0: uh, Michael, it's yes. interesting. First of all, you're ta- when you say Joe, you're talking about Joseph Chilton. Joseph- yes, yes, I'm sorry. The magical child. And it's very similar to the the argument for four arguments against television to sure. get that guy because
1: well actually Jerry a, Ger- Jerry Mander who wrote that book was in this symposium
0: yes right doesn't matter what you're watching it's the screen that's the effect that's right. what a child sees is a screen right so doesn't this matter is a, this what is, the content is
1: right so this is the, this is a paradigm shift for most people because we assume that if we change the program
0: yeah
1: that we're having a different experience But Marshall McLuhan coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And nobody got nobody understood what that meant. What he means is the screen is the screen doesn't matter what what's being displayed on the screen. Exactly. So that's the big deal that we really have to to grasp and understand. So that's yes, the medium is the message and so on and so forth. Now, Jerry Mander, who you brought up, um, Jerry kept hammering on the phrase, form is content. That's another way of saying the medium is the message. Form is content. And, and when I interviewed John Taylor Gatto, which I'm kind of jumping forward into our, into our discussion about schooling, in 1990, John was voted the Teacher of the Year in New York City and also in New York State. He also retired that year. And he wrote an op-ed, which was stunning. I actually remember reading it. And in that op-ed, he apologized for all the harm that he had caused all those kids by participating in this system. Yeah. And he coined the phrase at that time, dumbing us down. Yeah. And that was his description of what what we call compulsory schooling was intended and designed to do. Yes. It was designed from the get go to dumb us down. And he right. spent the rest of his life documenting the research that that shows that that is the case. It wasn't just an error or a mistake, but it was the the intention. And right. I'll, I'll give you a quote, we'll read a quote, um, in a little bit. Um, well, actually, why don't we let me share my screen. And let me show you let me read this quote from john, which I think is a great one, which will help. So back to john Taylor Gatto. So this is from an interview. He said, from Calvin to Spinoza, down to Darwin and the present, humanity is divided into two classes, managers and the managed farmers and cows, what we call the elites and everyone else. The general belief was at least 80% of the human population are uneducable. That was the basic idea behind these, the, the whole thing. So the goal of of compulsory conditioning or schooling is to bind up these energies of the irrational 80% and destroy their imagination. Destroy their imagination because it's only through imagination that the maximum damage is unleashed. Otherwise people can struggle against the chains or maybe even cause local damage, but they can't do much harm to the fundamental structure because they can't think outside of the box. So in 1820, we have Darwin saying that people are basically fixed biologically in classes and there's nothing you can do about it. This is the essence of eugenics. Every one of these people in a sense is saying that what we call education isn't even possible. What we call education is romantic nonsense. Now this is this was John Gatto talking about the history of how we came to the kind of structure of schooling that we have, and um, uh, basically he the John's John's uh, I can go back now. Okay, so basically what John was was did his research on was um, how how was a st- structure? Let's not even call it schooling. How was a structure created that would prevent the people in that structure? from cultivating imagination and conceiving of things other than to do things different than what they're told does that make sense yeah so they want to build they want to build a conveyor belt or a system that eliminates the possibility for people to to do things other than what they're told now this goes back to the napoleonic wars and napoleon and him being defeated and so on and so forth so the prussian army got defeated by Napoleon, and they decided that they needed to create a structure for conditioning the soldiers so that they they, they they wouldn't have the capacity not to follow directions, period. That was the goal. And so they built this structure, and that became the model for what we call compulsory schooling. Yeah. And the goal of it was to eliminate this possibility of people to imagine and be creative, et cetera, et cetera so now that was where john um you know focused his energy and attention and um so i i read john's works um and i read holt's works and and it became apparent that this was really um that schools were not doing what we thought they were right so basically that was that was kind of the beginning of it what I'd like to do is go back and share my screen again. Okay, so this is an This is a video with Joseph Chilton Pierce talking about uh, the difference between real learning and conditioning. Joe, I often use the phrase the intelligence of play.
2: What is the relationship between play and learning? I They, they are certainly interdependent. You can't have real learning with the child unless they are playing. Real playing is how real learning takes place. You can have conditioning and kind the of Pavlovian conditioning of his dogs or behavior modifications through other means, which we look on as very serious and which we generally call learning. But it's not learning, it's conditioning. Real learning takes place by what Maria Montessori would call the absorbent mind of the child, simply absorbing their universe, absorbing it, becoming it, and they do this through play. Play can be the most serious undertaking of a child's life. It is the most serious undertaking. They, they are completely entrained in play. Mind, the three parts of the mind, thought, feeling, action, the body, Every aspect of the child's self entrains solely, focuses totally on the activity of absorbing their world, absorbing their environment. It's the most serious act of their life because they're literally building their construction of knowledge of their world, of themselves, of the relationship between the two, and laying down all the foundations for the later forms of intelligence. and in all of that play is the activity itself so you have those two things what we think of as learning is conditioning training is conditioning but real learning is that state of play we we have to interrupt the child's real state of learning or play in order to bring about what we think should be their training and their conditioning If the state of play is the optimum state for learning and performance, then what's going on in school, which is often not exactly playful? Well, schools are set up for conditioning. There are certain aspects of the child we want to train to respond in certain ways through schooling. This This is conditioning. Behavior modifications. In each case, we must interrupt the child's real learning process of play in order to bring about these conditions which we think they should have. So our entire schooling is set up largely on conditioning rather than learning in the only way the child can learn which is through what we as an adult interpret as play. I think this is one of the reasons we find a very small percentage of retention of the conditioning we think we're getting our children through I remember the Carnegie Institute's famous statement I think it was the Carnegie Institute back in 63 even way back then that the child seems to retain only three to five percent of the total information or conditioning uh, modifications we're trying to bring about about three to five percent retention Whereas that which is learned in a state of play is literally built in as a a permanent neural patterning in the brain, which they never lose. If we could just recognize the the direct correspondence between play and learning and the dramatic difference between that and conditioning. And by simply shifting over, I think our entire schooling could be extremely successful and produce a 95% retention, but it would have to be within the frame of the, the way by which nature has set up the learning process in the job. So this
1: is, a, this is a big paradigm shift, right? To shift from the notion that what we call learning is really conditioning the memorization, all the rote stuff that's happening in, in the schools retention is only three to five um, percent I did some math right if we if we if if the three to five percent represent represents the real productivity of the school year three to five percent is the retention and if we span over 15 years uh, you know kindergarten and preschool through maybe first year of college or something like that so if you have 15 years and three percent equals point45. Right. So your your real, your real productivity of that 15 years is 0. 0.45 of a year, half a year, basically, giving you, yeah. Yeah, right? Or the real productivity at 5% is 0. 0.75. So out of the 15 years, three quarters of a year was real learning. What was the rest? The rest was interacting with the screen, it was interacting with the system, it was the standing in line, it was the it was being conditioned by the structure, not the curriculum, right? Right. So this conditioning, that's why that's why Gatto said dumbing us down is the is the way the system is structured because the vast so you can really look at at curriculum being a carrot, that's the carrot to drag you into the system. But the real purpose of the system is not curriculum. It's to condition you to obey authority. And follow rules and do what you're told, basically. Right. So, that's that with that in mind.
0: You know, uh, Michael, over the years, people have often said, but Tom, don't you think the school system is failing? And you hear about that a lot. And I always said, no. The whole thing was set up to make people stupider and to condition them to be, to not think and it's very successful they've got it down to a science
1: absolutely you know and and um you know in the notes that i sent you earlier again taking a quote from john's work let me bring it up because it's a it's a great uh, um uh, let me read this quote from you this is a quote from john um i assume that you can still see us on the screen because i've covered us yes. up okay great So let me read this quote from john. It's it's from his book weapons of mass instruction. (laughs) School is such a devaluation of human experience and human hopes that it took a long time to pull the trick off. Today, the stability of the school institution seems permanent, but not because it serves people, the largest, it's the largest single part of the economy, it employs more people gives more career ladders. It's one of the bedrocks of the middle class and preserves all the other institutions. The development of the critical mind is strictly forbidden in school. You're not allowed to learn how to think critically, period. He says, Craig Wittner, the beach bum surfer who shared the laurels um, for producing the map of the human genome cut class often to hit the boogie board only to escape junior high because a teacher changed his F to a D. The school, so the school could get rid of him. George W. Bush had a C average in high school and a C average in college, but that was a higher C average in high school and college um, than, than, than the Massachusetts Senator John Kerry earned. Al Gore flunked out of his first college and squeaked through his second with a C average. Dick Cheney flunked out too. Legendary Progressive Senator Paul Wellstone scored 800 on his combined SAT. Bill Gates and Paul Allen of Microsoft had no college degree. Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak of Apple had no college degree. Michael Dell is another under uh, immortal of the computer game, uh, as is Larry Ellison of Oracle. Ted Turner, founder of CNN, dropped out of college. William Faulkner's high school grades were so horrible, um, they couldn't get him into the University of Mississippi. Um, Warren Avis, the man who pioneered the auto rental uh, at airports, decided that college was a waste of time and didn't even apply. Edward Hamilton, the nation's largest independent mail order book dealer, wrote me that the advantage he had was that he didn't waste his time or capital going to college. Paul Orfila, the highly intelligent founder of Kinko's was not regarded as very bright in his high school. Lou Wasserman created the modern Hollywood with his Colossus MCA. He had no college degree and spent no time in high school. Warren Buffett started a business at age six selling ice Coca-Cola. By 18, he had the equivalent of $100,000 in the bank. When he applied to the Wharton Business School, he was turned down. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, some taught them, yes, to be sure, but they weren't the products of a school system. Through most of American history, kids generally did not go to school, and yet the unschooled rose to be admirals like Fahrenheit, inventors like Edison, captains of industry like Carnegie and Rockefellers, writers like Melville and Twain and Conrad, and even scholars like Margaret Mead consider what society would look like if 65 million trapped school children learning to be consumers were suddenly set to actively imagine themselves to be producers instead of bored consumers. Isn't that exactly what America needs at this sorry, sterile juncture in our history? Not more well-schooled zombies whose back a few can ride. So that was John's um you know kind of preface of of the the real the real value of the school system
0: you know it's interesting when you hear that list and there's obviously some people on that list who let's just say I'm not a huge fan of right uh, but but it just goes to show that maybe they figured out how to manipulate other people like you know they knew that they had something up on other people who had been more schooled but anyways well if they
1: you know if you if you once you puncture the and now this is going to get down we can shift over to the more practical side right so once you've the the first step in even considering homeschool unschooling no school whatever you want to call it an alternative The first step is for the adult to do their homework and read and discover what John Gatto and many, many other leaders in the field have been trying to share for a long time. That the school is is not really delivering what it's it's supposed to be delivering. And it's actually, as Joe said, it's a conditioning system far more than it is a personal development system right of course you know once you you know people's i i advised my son i said this was my my now 36 year old and and he wanted to he his his mother's uh his his grandma wanted him to go to usc and i said do you want to go to usc and he goes well hell i don't know i said well then you shouldn't go if you don't know if you don't know why you don't want to go you shouldn't go Right. Yes. So I, you should take you should take a year or two, go live, go travel, go to South America, go to Asia, you know, go to Europe, go someplace, learn about what you really want to do. And then you can come back and use the school to get where you want to go instead of stepping on the conveyor belt and having the school take you where it wants to go. And of course, he didn't do that. But but that's still my advice. And there's there, the other thing is that the value of a college degree has diminished. Um, you know, it's in, overinflated. Yeah. It's like inflation, right? So yeah. so now it's, it's worth ten cents instead of a hundred bucks. Yeah. So um, the value of the college degree is has diminished tremendously.
0: Okay. So, so now now we got to school is not the place to learn. It's not. And and I personally. To me this is all schools. Doesn't matter private public whatever. It's right. the it's like screens. Uh screens are screens. School is school. Doesn't matter to me what kind of school. So once you get that point uh now you uh, correct me you have you have a young child so you're doing this again.
1: Yeah, it's groundhog day.
0: <laughs> so how do you go about going from where a lot of people are at like they know school is not the place to be now what do you do all right
1: so again this is the nuts and the bolts in the practice so the first part is as i said the hardest thing for this whole thing is to as ilyich said to de-school us we have to de-school ourselves we have to go through and take a look at our experience and we have to we have to realize that that wasn't what real learning was, as Joe said. So once, and, and that you can do that, there's a bunch of books. And and if you'll put that list, the bibliography that I sent to you, it's a great list. Um, so post that for everybody. Okay. Um, there are, there are um, you know, there are books. People have been writing about this for a long time. And it's really important for the adult who's considering this to kind of get this overview, John Holt is on the list. I mentioned him before. John Taylor Gatto is on the list. Alfie Cohen is on the list. Another another amazing guy. Yeah. He basically, you know, said, "What's this myth of homework? What about punishments and rewards? What about competition?" And he's written scholarly works challenging statistically the validity of these paradigms. Um, Who else? There's a, there's a, oh, there's a guy named Peter Gray, who was a psychologist and Peter's son hated school. And he said, uh, you know, I'm not going. He said, I'm not going to school. Forget it. He just, he was in the principal's office. So they ended up sending him to Sodbury, which is a free school. You can go to class if you want. You don't have to go to class if you don't want to, you know, it's, it's up to you. There's, it's non-coercive, right? yeah so the basic structure of compulsory education which is what we think school is catholic school like you said it doesn't matter they're all the same it's compulsory you have to go you have to do what you're told you have to compare you have to compete that's compulsory authority compulsory those are the two words obedience to authority and you have to do it and that's the the main paradigm the flip of that is what they call the free school which is, you don't, not non-coercive, you know, right? Yeah. So there are school structures that were set up to be non-coercive. Then there's things like Steiner and Waldorf, which were, were talking about the inner life of develop, developing the inner life and um, what you might call the spirit side of things. Um, so then, they, then a pedagogy was created around that matrix. And there's others which have um, you know, social responsibility. You're a, produ- you're a member of the world and the community and you need to be socially responsible. So pedagogies evolved around that. So in that document that I'm happy to have you share is a chart that I abstracted of here's mainstream, here's Waldorf, here's Krishnamurti schools, here's um, the free schools, etc. So you can kind of get a graphic overview of where each of the alternative school systems uh, fall. Now, again, that's talking about a going to a quote school. Now we have, but we're also, but we're also talking about forget that. We're not going to go to school. We're going to do it at home, and we're going to do it ourselves. And that's a whole nother, another thing. But you need to do your homework and do some of this reading. Otherwise, what you end up doing, which is what the original homeschoolers did, they just did at home what they what was being done at school. Yeah, right. That was what homeschool is homeschool is compulsory, it's authority, it's the same thing. But you're just doing it at home. And that was really done primarily for the religious groups so that their kids weren't infected by 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 everybody. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so now you, that then you shift over to what's called unschooling or deschooling, right? And and that's a completely different model. Because instead of the curriculum coming down from from high, the curriculum is a is like improv, you yeah. improv, you improvise the curriculum based on the aptitude, the interest, the age, developmental stages. Who is this child today? Now, Chris McCirliano is a friend. He's been involved with this for for 50 years. He was the director of the Albany Free School for 35 or 40 years. And over the top of his free school, he said, every child comes with a curriculum and it's our job to discover what that is. And that nails it. Right, that yeah. nails it, and you have to bring that home to the to today. It's not this year. It's not the curriculum for the year. It's not this month, because this child is literally a different being, a different creature. that has different interests and has different um, um, passions today, and they're going to be a different person tomorrow. So you have to you have to be down and really observe and be be sensitive and attuned to who your child is today. Now, this places a tremendous pressure on the adult because we've been deeply conditioned to turn all of that over. We don't have to do anything. All we have to do is put them on the conveyor belt or the bus and pick them up at the end of the day and maybe go once a year to look inside their desk. But that's about all is required of being a parent um, when you send them to quote school. But when when you take responsibility for your child, literally you can't do that anymore they're they're not going to do it and the first thing people do is basically they they go and they buy the curriculum from the you know what is first grade what is third grade and and they and they basically do at home what was done in school and 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 get by but the deeper the deeper is you don't that's the unschooling The the unschooled person um, basically uses improv and it's like, I use the metaphor of surfing, right? Because the wave is always moving. It's a moving thing and you have to be agile and you have to kind of adapt to, to what the crest of the wave is and is it raining outside or is it sunny? And um, you know, what, what is interesting to the kid today instead of yesterday and so on and so forth. And then you meet them where they are and you leech out of everyday experiences. I'll use baking cookies as a classic example baking cookies involves chemistry, it involves physics, it involves the temperature, it the mixing, it involves fractions, measurements, right? So all of these skills that are quote abstracted as academics are actually woven and embedded into real life experiences. You talked about your your young man who's building a house, right? So what does it take to build a house? He needs to, you know, yeah. it's all that stuff. But it's real instead of being abstracted as a as a worksheet. So you're, yeah. you're doing tell,
0: Mike Michael, tell me if this is sort of what you mean, because I've said this for years. So the, the way this, to me, works is you have a child, and it, it's not every child, but this particular child is somehow fascinated by or there's has almost an inner calling to build a tree fort. let's say he's nine or so right, right now you you say okay your job then is to hook him up with somebody who knows how to build tree forts I mean maybe you do but and and he goes to the tree fort guy and he says you know I want to build a tree fort and you know you pay him or you get a group of people and you pay him and he comes and the guy says Well, you have to start with this and you have to divide this side by this side. And the child looks at the guy and says, what do you mean by divide? Right. And the guy, the tree fort guy says, you don't know about division? And the guy says, no, I never heard of division. He says, you can't build a tree fort unless you know how to measure and divide this. I can guarantee you that child will go home to his parents and say, you teach me division right now. (laughs) <laughs> and in a, another week, or I'm I'm packing my bags and leaving here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, yes, no. So basically what you're talking about is intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic motivation. So intrinsic, so basically the kid wants to build a treehouse, right? Right. So that's the passion. That's going to drive him to learn whatever he has to learn in order to do what he wants to do. That's intrinsic. Yeah. So that's the wave. That's the wave that you, as an adult, as a mentor as a guide whatever you want to call it that's the wave that you have to find and you have to ride now most of them don't do that most of them say well it's you know thursday and you know so we need to be on page six
0: yeah who
1: wants to do that that, that does nothing that there's zero intrinsic motivation in page six building a treehouse, man that's really worth doing it so yes that's the that's the juice or energy that leads to spontaneous learning and and they will learn it as joe said it's the act of play then you've just shifted from conditioning to play building the yeah. tree house is play and that's what you want to do so there's another there's an even a more formal but you, you
0: even say then that your job is a to try to find what what that thing what the treehouse is for your child and expose them to as many possible tree houses as you can imagine and see which one of them is the one that says, yeah, I want to, I want to make shoes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, again, your job, yes, is to, is to provide, you know, to expose now, to expose, to introduce, you know, I don't know what a treehouse is, so you know if if I say it, you want to build a treehouse, but they don't know what a treehouse is, then then it's, you're still an abstraction. So you know yeah. you take them down the street and you say, let's build a house like that that's up in the tree. Wow, you know that sounds like a great thing. So now you now you've found something that they are passionate about, and you leach the curriculum, the abstractive, the division, as you said, you leach that out of the building process. And it all makes sense. It's valuable. It's real. It's not abstract. It's concrete. It's getting me where I want to go. And that becomes a creative daily challenge. Everything I remember with, our, with John Michael and my son, Eric, um, everything was a homeschool adventure. Let me give you a good example. Some of his, John Michael's friends went to Knott's Berry Farm, which is a theme park. Used to be wagons and cowboys and Indians in the Wild West. Uh, before it became a little bigger and more modern. Um, And they had the little pan for gold thing. So you would be able to go and you'd kind of swash the pan around and they would pour some little gold flakes into a little vial and you'd bring it home. And and John Michael said, man, that would really, let's go to Knott's Berry Farm. I wanna go panning for gold. And I said, John Michael, there's some rivers right up here, you know, Sacramento, this is where the gold rush was, right? So we took a weekend. We took a. We drove. We went from Southern California to um, a little place called Calico. Calico was a big silver mine that's near Bakersfield. We yeah. went on up to the the Sierras. We're telling stories. We're reading Mark Twain. We're we're talking about the Gold Rush. We're talking about history. We're talking about geography. We're we're going. We went to the the old. Um, hardware store and we bought a rusty old pan. We went to the streams where there were where these gold mines were. So we spent a week Oh, we ended up in Bodie, which is in Northern California, which is an old ghost town that was from this time. So this is a great example. It started with a Knott's Berry Farm fake, right? Yeah. And what we did is that we turned it into a weekend. And He'll never forgot it he never forgot anything about it as Joe said because this is this was this was the time of his life but he learned history he learned he learned uh, anyway California gold rush all that stuff so that becomes the what we call the homeschool model is instead of doing the workbooks and so on um, I want to say that that to um, to really help with this, like I said, the bibliography that I put together on that sheet is, is indispensable. It's, it's, these are great. These are all great. And they will really help the adult go through their rite of passage, right? It takes great courage for the adult to let go of all of their models. Because if you're actually, you, you give up the comparison. You're not gonna compare your kid to grade levels. You're not gonna compare them to other kids. You're gonna give up comparison completely because you have a unique child. They're gonna learn how to write and to sing and to dance at their own pace in their own way without comparison or coercion. Um, so you wanna you want to have the, the, the parent needs to continually go through this uh, deconditioning process um, and i would say the number one criteria for homeschooling is you need to you need to be able to be present um you can't do it you can't do it you you can't you have to be there you have to you have to help it doesn't mean you have to do everything i don't play the piano so i'm not going to teach carly my eight-year-old how to play the piano but i can certainly um sing with her and i can find somebody who knows how to play the piano right when i did it when i'm when i wanted to find somebody to help carly with the piano there was a 60 year old teacher and she played the piano and taught classes and all that stuff and i didn't want the 60 year old i wanted one of her students i wanted a 12 year old i got an eight year old i want a 12 year old so can we find a 12 year old that can teach my eight-year-old what she loves and And how is
0: that going
1: it's going fine you know it's going fine it was tough because the the 60 year old got upset because i didn't want her Yeah, (laughs) But but the real thing is how do you find people in the community who love what they do and and you hook the child up with that passion and then it just becomes play the whole thing becomes play as joe said and um
0: you know, one of the things I've noticed, and I'd, I'd like to hear your comment on this, is when you really watch children, they very rarely teach each other anything. In fact, I think it's kind of a social taboo as a child to teach another child just about anything. They They talk about things and they show sometimes, but this sort of teaching energy like, i know so you listen to me it that that every child who hears that with if it's a child they just go away like they're just not interested
1: yeah well i think i think the same is true for kids in school right
0: yeah you know except they have to they have to pay attention or something bad happens but
1: so so bev yes if something bad happens they have to do it because of the rewards and punishments you know bev boss who was an icon in early childhood education in California. She gave six thousand workshops to preschool teachers. You know, that's a lot of workshops. So Bev said experience, right? Experience is the teacher. So yeah. you want you want to surround the child with as many experiences as you can. And then and then you, you leech out the abstractions, the 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 intellectual meanings that, that we're going to attribute to it the intellect but and and we confuse that we're, we're mostly interested in you know or shall we say the intellect takes supremacy so we have we we live in our abstractions instead of our experience and what we really want to do is you know have the child learn through experience and what you're saying is that most kids don't abstract it they just do the experience part
0: right so what do you have any uh uh experience with carly about this thing they call socialization like what 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 can you tell parents about that
1: well you know tom this is a this is this is touchy because you know the the state of parenting has changed um almost it's almost unrecognizable since world war ii right what it means to be a parent today in an urban setting, surrounded by technology, um, a single parent, grandparents are gone, you know, grannies granny's on a cruise ship, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing of what, of the challenge that parents have in the loss of the extended family, the loss of community, the isolation, the phones, all of these things are conspiring um, to to uh, handicap, parents. Um, they worry, they hover, um, they micromanage, they're pretty neurotic, frankly. So yeah, so right. most, most kids, the first challenge is for the kids to survive the neuroticism that their parents represent. That's the number one deal.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: You know, I mean, it's just, yeah. so the parent, the parent is always, you know, is always the first and biggest challenge is, you know, if, if you can get the parent right, if you can straighten them out so that they're happy and playful. The the socialization thing is is a non issue, right? Yeah. They the kids will naturally um, connect with those people who are vital and playful. And I'll use play, I wrote a book on it. Um, actually, I you know, you, you're a golfer, or you were a golfer. And, um, you know, I interviewed 30 tour players about how they, how they were able to, you know, rise to the PGA and then become a Hall of Famer. I did a couple of Hall of Famers, etc. And I didn't ask them how they swung the club. I asked them how they were parented. What was it about the way you were parented and the way that your parents related to you as a young, uh, you know, golfer that allowed you to not self-destruct as you went through this, through this rite of passage, right? And, um, you know, I, I use humor. I'm going to say this as a personal thing. My, my eight-year-old, we are laughing and we're, we're negotiating you know, you know, I'll pay you $2. No, she wants $3. And you know, so we're like, how many credits, you know, we're playing this negotiation game. And she knows it's a play. She knows it's play. And if something goes wrong, and she needs to clean up a room, and I'm kind of grumpy, because you know, I asked her 25 times to clean up a room. I always go to play. I always, you know, it's it's never serious, it's always a playful. Yes, I'm passionate about cleaning up the room, but I make it playful. And then how I go How do don't you help. do that? How, how do, do you I, do that? How do I do it? Yeah. I don't know. It's again it's improv, right? You have to you have to flip it so that it so that you make a joke out of it. Yeah. Now you're serious because damn it, I told you 25 times to clean this thing up. It's yeah. not clean. And but somehow taking, you know, changing, changing my state so that it's so that it's so that it's a joke, the you know, the instead of it being punitive, it becomes humorous. Right. And and that's the flip. And I'll 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 share with you, you know, one other aspect of this and it's and it's called state specific learning and performance, which was the, the main theme of the book that I wrote about play play is what athletes call the zone, which is what the research community calls flow, flow, the zone and child's play are, are the same state with three different labels. Yeah. And, and this particular state has certain attributes to it. It's flexible, it's imaginative, it's exploratory, you have willingness to risk. Um, if it falls down and you fail, it's not a failure, there's no failure possible in play. But yeah. if the if the tower falls down, well, that's great, because now you see if you can build it taller. So there's yeah. no failure, there's no comparison. So there's a certain there's, a, there are certain qualities, a gestalt of qualities that that's um, inherent in the play state. That's not in, not in any other state. Now state specific learning and performance has a biological function because when when a neural pattern is created from an experience, you have all three or four brains. You have the sensory motor brain is contributing its piece to that experience. What does it move and take? What does it feel like in three dimensions? By weight, the physical part of it. Yeah. What is the emotional feeling that I'm having as I'm doing this? Right? Yeah. So there's your emotional component. And then you have your abstraction, which is your mental, you know, your, your, uh, your sort of thought, feeling and action. Each of those, each of those patterns get woven into the neural patterning, which we call the memory of this experience.
0: Yeah,
1: all three of them. If you poke the physical part, the others ring too. If you poke the emotional part, the others ring too. If you pull out the card catalog and do the, do the, uh, you know, the, the concept you feel, you feel the feeling and you embody the, the, the sensory experience. So state specific state specific learning and performance is the realization that the gestalt of all of those three aspects are woven into the experience. Now play is nature's agenda for optimum learning and performance as Joe said, not conditioning, right? Yeah. Look at your emotional and physical state when you're sitting in a classroom, being compelled, forced and compared, judged and so on to pass this spelling test. Yeah. Which was my dreaded experience, you know, all through school. Right. As opposed to building the treehouse, Right. Now, there you've got it because now the neural implant or the whole thing so once you realize that, as Joe said, if we can flip our paradigm to play to the optimum state, we want, we want the state becomes more important than the score, right? This is what all the athletes are talking about. They're going to hire the, the best, you know, uh, psychologists and coaches to keep them in the play state so that they, because they know that they're going to perform at their highest levels, if they don't, if they stay there, if they can be in the zone, they're going to do better. Yeah. Period. They know that they're going to make a lot more money if they're in the zone than if they're than if they're self sabotaging. Apply that to parenting and apply that to schooling, and that becomes your ticket.
0: Yeah. Okay, so this is really it's a challenge to parents to. It's time for parents. I I would almost say it's time for parents to grow up. Yeah, And be adults and take responsibility for the health and well-being of their children. I mean, they're the ones who are responsible. They made this happen. And so it's time to understand what it is a child needs, how a child learns, how a child grows. And that's the way out of this awful conditioned humanity that we've got ourselves in where nobody can think for themselves and everybody just follows along. And if you think something different, you know, then you get kicked out of the tribe and all the rest of it. Yep. So this oh. is, this is really the future. It's, it's really almost we either do this, take what you're saying seriously, or I don't know what, but it doesn't, doesn't look good to me. Yeah. It's so
1: again, the key here the key issue and I just I just did a presentation for the pre and perinatal psychology movement in Europe and it had to do with bonding and what is bonding right because if if we were truly bonded with our kids in in this organic full way this what I it's almost a telepathic surfing kind of thing you are you are so in tune with with who that kid is this moment have, you know you're you're dancing together it's a dance that's what bonding is at whatever level it's a dance and you're and you're like Ginger Rogers and and whoever the other guy was
0: anyway, all right so, so uh, we will uh, put the uh that paper out and uh give people some links and i think this is a hugely important discussion about what we're talking about and Thanks, Michael, for joining me. This was really huge. And if you could just stay on the line for one minute, Um, I'm going to shut the recording off. And thanks, everybody, for joining me.